You are listening to the Horizons Church Podcast. Hello. Hey! The most straightforward podcast introduction we've ever done. Yeah, I didn't have a quote this time or any any dumb intro. <laughs> That's it. It's all, I just got a good, honest hey. There was no Anthony Sugar, you know, what business of a friend, though. <laughs> I was really mumble. proud of that. Mumble, mumble menacingly. I have no right to be proud of that, but I am. <laughs> you know, you got to take the, the wins where they come. Yes, you do. Yeah. And I would call that a win. A win? Okay. I thought I was standing in the presence of... <laughs> Sugar. Just close your eyes and then just <laughs> induce fear. Yes. Correct. <laughs> that is completely unrelated to what mm-hmm. we're about to talk about. But I was thinking back to Javier Bardem's, or however you say his name, yeah. portrayal of Anton. Anton Sugar in No Country for Old Men mm-hmm. and how frightening and imposing he yeah. is. And I was thinking, his performance reminds me of somebody else, and it was Anthony Hopkins as Hannibal Lecter. The same kind of, even just oh, when you look at them. I mean, ice cold. Yeah, just like, mm, like you're freaky. You are freaky. And you you're, are frightening. Oh, yeah. That's a good and, comparison. Yeah. And I was like, who else has made me feel like that? Oh, yes. <laughs> Hannibal Lecter in yeah. Silence of the Lambs. <laughs> yeah. So Real true. That's just for fun. Just an aside. Good one. I like back-referencing things. Yeah. So, anyway, today, Mm -hmm. the book of Micah. Micah, Micah, Micah. Whoa. Yeah. The little echo effect. (laughs) Zach didn't even have to add that. That was just Ethan. Yeah, that was real life. Live effects. And now, Micah, of course, being another minor prophet along the lines of Habakkuk. Yeah, right. So, perhaps slightly unfamiliar territory, but Micah, he's a good writer. You know, I mean, most most of the prophets were. Well, you know, yeah. <laughs> I mean, they were right. Their subject matter was not great, but you know, exactly, they were very poetic and wonderful and great names too. They got great names. Yeah, Micah, Habakkuk, I Zephaniah. Love, I love their names. Ah, oh, that's so good. So today is uh, is Micah, and then as we carry along here, you'll see where these themes overlap with another recent piece of yes, indeed, cultural wonder. Mm. Oh, good way to put it. Thank you. Timeless. Yeah, let's just roll right along here. Micah. Micah was prophesying and doing his work around the time immediately leading up to the Assyrian invasion of Israel. Hmm. And the Assyrians, of course, were brutal, they were evil, and they were bloodthirsty. So he is prophesying to God's people at the time immediately leading up to when they came and invaded and sacked Israel, for lack of a better term. Now, by this time, actually, I should clarify, just Mm -hmm. so we make sure we're on the same historical page, the kingdom of Israel had been split in half by this point. You have a northern kingdom with the capital of Samaria, and you have the southern kingdom, the capital of Jerusalem. Is this like Egypt, where the upper kingdom is like actually more southern? Or is it like real cardinal directions? Real cardinal directions. So you have a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Yeah, that's right, because you have the upper Nile and the lower Nile, and it's 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 not upper and lower. Yeah, it's like the upper Nile is actually the southern Southern. end. Isn't that weird? (sighs) Geography, so strange. It is. But anyway, this is a true northern kingdom, a true southern kingdom, which is unfortunate for Israel, but... Oh, okay, yeah. You know, I mean, that's... (laughs) Different issue. (laughs) Yeah, it's a different issue altogether. And of course, the Assyrians carried away exiles from the northern kingdom. They didn't do that to the southern kingdom. Babylonians did that after the Assyrians a couple hundred years later. The Assyrians did... I believe, if I'm remembering correctly, attacked Jerusalem, mm. but they did not exile them. That's where we are historically. Okay. That's when Micah is prophesying. Now, the book is arranged as a compilation of dire warnings, followed by glimmers of hope 
and redemption. So you kind of have this back and forth movement that happens between sections of chapters. And from a bird's eye view, all the warnings are basically centered around Israel's leaders and the other prophets. Mm. Because according to Micah, they've accumulated power and wealth and they've maintained their power and wealth by completely ignoring justice. Of course. And completely ignoring the law and by basically oppressing the people that God entrusted them to shepherd and care for. So Micah is very frustrated, very angry with the leaders and the prophets. And he actually speaks directly to them as opposed to Habakkuk, our most recent minor prophet. Habakkuk was talking to God. What's his relationship to these leaders? Well, obviously they probably don't much like him. No, that seems like quite, (laughs) oh, quite a risk. And actually that's something that you see common with the prophets. If you read like- Right, I mean, um, that's their role in many ways. And you see in like first and second Kings and first and second Chronicles, you'll have like the majority of the prophets who are supposed to be God's mouthpiece, speaking truth to power, doing the opposite. And then you'll have one kind of rogue prophet who everyone hates. And he's like the guy that, you know, they're like, oh, we don't want to talk to him because he's going to prophesy something bad. They hate him because he's pointing a finger at a glaring misstep. Yes. Essentially. And a true one. Like, it's not like he's just being contrarian. It's like, uh, you guys are violating your... role as leaders, you're yeah. just, you're basically making a mockery of God's covenant. And also he's going to judge you if you don't repent. Oh, and they're gosh. like, no, 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 we, no, no, stop, go away and stop saying that. So that's what Micah is doing. His message kind of stands as a warning siren to the nation, particularly the Northern kingdom, because the leaders are not living into their God-given roles as protectors, as vanguards of righteousness. What he says is essentially God is going to bring disaster upon you. And the disaster is going to be Assyria is going to come and exile you. They're going to come carry you out of this land that God promised to you because you are so out of step and out of line with what God wants you to do. And Micah makes it pretty clear that God is going to, for lack of a better term, extreme means to get the attention of yeah, the leaders. Like clearly. this is not just a, I'm going to slap you on the wrist. You need to get your act together. He's like saying, no, you're going to be vomited out of the land <laughs> because of what you have done and how serious your offenses are. They're absolutely grievous, Yeah, which actually kind of segues into. Well, in the 2017 classic, three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri, we have a very similar setup. At the beginning, we're introduced to a woman. Her name is Mildred Hayes. And we come to understand that she has lost her daughter to homicide in very horrific circumstances. And all of that has left her in this very kind of broken state with the loss of her daughter and really loss of her family. As a result, they've really splintered apart. It shattered her trust in the justice system, in Mm -hmm. organized religion even. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, she's really in a sorry state, but she essentially does um, the one thing that might be within her power that might give her a voice, very much what you described like a warning siren, Mm -hmm. to point to this injustice because uh, we learned that the killer has never been apprehended. And so she uses these three billboards as this loud cry for justice um, Mm -hmm. in a very pointed way, describing the manner of her daughter's death, that there have been no arrests, and then (laughs) directly asking the chief of police, why? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, again, not a friendly position to put yourself in. Yeah, very kind of prophetic voice. Exactly. And that happens. I mean, this is like a very immediate setup and we're introduced to this horror show of (laughs) pain and uh, a very risky chess move. Yeah. So you have a character who's asking and seeking kind of a prophetic 
yeah. justice and wondering why the powers that be seemingly have kind of given up. And- yeah. I mean, and then, of course, in a very real sense of a true crime sense, it's, she's not getting the full picture. And so her immediate response is just pain and very much anger that nothing's being done. But the sad reality is there simply isn't that much evidence to proceed in the case. But it leads her to this very kind of angry and slightly naive view of a fire and brimstone justice that she thinks she deserves. Mm -hmm. But at at the very end of the day, it's a desperate cry for justice and I think closure. Yeah, so it's a little bit like the prophetic voice of someone like Micah, but it's not got the same ring of hope as one has with, oh, there's going to be divine justice. It's vindictive in many ways. Yeah, which actually contrasts with the back and forth setup of Micah, which is that for all the sections where we have setups of dire warning and here is what God is going to do to bring about the justice that you're neglecting, you see sprinkled throughout the rest of the chapters of Micah, these little bits of hope and the promise that God will one day deliver and restore his people. Right. And he will reign over them and watch over them as a shepherd, as the shepherd that they've longed for, but that they haven't quite had. Mm-hmm. And he talks about how the people will be redeemed and transformed, and they're going to become a blessing to all the nations, even. They're not oh, just yeah. going to be a self-contained, you know, oh, hey, these are great things that are happening to us, and we have this land and these blessings and this prosperity, but that God is actually going to use them to bless all the nations. But all of this only after they've suffered the pain of their coming exile. That's when this happens. Because, of course, the pain of the exile is going to force them to realize their utter dependence upon the character and promises of God. And they're just, they're not going to do that. They have proved time and time again, they're (laughs) not going to do that unless something like this happens. And so the book is actually kind of capstoned well by Micah 6.8, which is perhaps one of the more well-known verses of Scripture. It's widely quoted. Sometimes it's not taken in the context of the book as a whole, which really informs what Micah is saying, but I digress. Um, (laughs) What he says there is, God has shown you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Mm. And so that's essentially what God is going to transform his people to do after he brings about these promises. So in the film... You're talking about these moments, these glimmering flecks of hope that you don't really, you don't really see in this movie. Yeah. Um, it's very, very bleak. Yeah. But instead, what you do find, you get these tiny moments of reprieve, which is really the closest thing you got. Yeah. I also think though it's one of the truest parts of the film, and it's something yeah. that I love very much about it because, I mean, I've never gone through anything even remotely similar to the kind of anguish that this woman as a mother is going through. Yeah. I think very few of us have, but we do still encounter heartbreak in our lives. Um, right. And we aren't given any guarantee of making it out intact. Yeah. The other side, like the third act of a buddy cop movie. Um, <laughs> Very specific image. <laughs> yeah, right. But this movie, it doesn't like give you that kind of cliched answer at the end. Like this is your way out of uh, despair in the way that you think you want. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't give you the cliche. It doesn't give you like these simple answers, but it does offer these small moments and the very tiny real life moments in the midst of some sort of painful mundane way of life. Yeah, and actually crosses well with Micah because the people who were hearing these promises did not see them fulfilled in their lifetime. Whoa, I mean, it was centuries before yeah. some of those promises actually came to pass. Exactly. And I think that it just rings so true. I think mm-hmm. we can even see it in our own lives on a much smaller scale. But this is not the only story being told in the movie. Right. And clearly there's more to Micah than just the warning signs. Yeah. Because we have another prominent character in the film played by Sam Rockwell. His name is Officer Dixon. Yeah. And uh, he is not the most pleasant character, not the most pleasant person you've ever met. 
He's impulsive, he's dislikable, angry, threads of racism, Uh, just to make you even more uncomfortable. I mean, he gives the police force a bad name. And in fact, I think early in the movie, one of his brothers in arms is just, he he asked the the chief of police, like, how's he still have a job? (laughs) And uh, Chief Willoughby is just like, he has a good heart. Like, well, I guess someone can see it. But in fact, that does come to fruition. You have to get to the turning point of the third act to actually see that come to fruition. But I think that kind of shows how hard won such a change can be. Um, Right. Because he goes through an exile of his own, like within his own context. Mm -hmm. He loses his job because of his actions. And in doing so, his very loose connections, I don't even know if you could call them friends, he loses all of that. Everything about his way of life is taken from him and he's left with just his anger and disappointment until he returns to the station one night to turn in his keys, sadly, once everyone has left (laughs) um, and to pick up a letter addressed to him by the late Sheriff Willoughby. Mm-hmm. However, as he reads this, it all goes under the backdrop of Mildred, who is firebombing the police station. She's just she's so throwing angry. Molotov yeah. cocktail. <laughs> so, I mean, to her credit, she doesn't know that anyone's inside. But this is like one of my favorite parts of the movie because you have this very extreme contrast between where these two characters have been taken yeah. uh, thus far. Because Mildred has reached an all-time full tilt, throwing Molotov cocktails at the police station. <laughs> It's just so ridiculous. It is absurd. (laughs) And then you have Sam Rockwell, completely oblivious. Well, I mean, I say Sam Rockwell just because I love him so much. You have Officer Dixon, the character he plays in the movie, um, completely oblivious because he has these headphones in and he's just reading the letter. Yeah. And so as the flames rage behind him, he reads, As long as you hold on to so much hate, and I don't think you're ever going to become what I know you want to become, a detective. Because you know what you need to become a detective? And I know you're going to wince when I say this, but what you need to become a detective is love. Because through love comes calm, and through calm comes thought. And you need thought to detect stuff sometimes. (laughs) It's kind of all you need. (laughs) God bless him, I love it. You don't even need a gun, and you definitely don't need hate. Hate never solved nothing, but calm did, and thought did. Try it. Try it for a change. Bless him, right? Yes. <laughs> so all of this, the moments from essentially what it was a mentor to him in many ways, kind of pouring into perhaps the only person who really saw Officer Dixon for, you know, the good that he had. Yeah. It starts to take root. Mm-hmm. But he's also going to get burned alive if he keeps reading this. So <laughs> yeah. he's like interrupted by this explosion of fire and he turns around and sees his exits are cut off. I mean, this is ooh, not good. This could go badly for everyone. Right. So as these fateful words are taking root, he saves one thing from the police station. And that is the case file of one Angela Hayes, Mildred's daughter. And this is really, this is his moment. This is the the initial turning point for his character. And he looks around for an exit and ultimately just busts through the, the flaming entrance of the station. And he throws out the case file that he protected under his shirt into the street. And then Mildred realizes just what she's done. Yeah. But she also realizes what he's done. Yeah. After all of this antagonizing, all of this mm-hmm. belligerence from both of them, really. Yeah, because he did not think fondly of her oh, because no. of what she was saying. Yeah. About the police. Yeah, yeah. She, and, oh, yeah. And I mean, many people thought quite poorly of Mildred for her actions. But we finally have this crux 
in the third act. And what you described earlier about becoming a blessing to all nations, Mm -hmm. this is interesting, all right? In the beginning of the film, we see how one person's pain, specifically Mildred's pain, and her anger can wreak havoc in other people's lives. And the relationships it destroys and all of the the tension it creates, really for no one's benefit in many ways. At the very least, it draws attention to the case, but it's a case that can virtually never be solved. So what good does it do? But by the end, we see the change in Sam Rockwell's character. Finally, we see this tiny bit of change that actually gives pause to the angriest woman in Missouri. Yeah. Um, And it's interesting because it is a total diametric shift into the one person's change and the effect it begins to have on other people. Yeah. Like for the first time, well, maybe not exactly for the first time, because we do see these flecks of humanity in Mildred, but it really, for the first um, meaningful time, begins to soften her character. I mean, this is everything we do not believe her to be. Yeah. So it's quite a change. And that turning point moment sets him down a new path to at least try to answer the call for justice that she proclaimed at the start of the film. And of course, it came at the sort of cost, I guess, of baptism by fire. He's hospitalized for it. Yeah. In every sense of the word is he baptized by fire. Yeah. Because it is an extraordinary word picture just just, oh, I don't know, we'll set the police station on fire. But also what he goes through emotionally, having lost so much. Yeah. And then having to face the cost of his own decisions. Right. Which is a unique thing because no one likes to do that in this film. But there he is. There he is. Kind of taking the brunt of the prophetic cry for justice. And unlike Israel's leaders at the time of Micah actually Mm. saying, no, you're right. There is maybe something more we can try to do. Right. Like even if at the end of it, we don't see this case solved or in the case of like Micah's people, we don't see these promises quite fulfilled. Something inside of us still longs in some sense to Mm -hmm. love justice and love mercy, to see those virtues and values played out. Mm -hmm. And that way I find it a very reaffirming story it surprises. It kind of sneaks up on you in, yeah. in doing so because it delivers a certain kind of, I don't even know if I want to say closure, but it delivers you to a particular point that you didn't maybe realize how much you'd appreciate. Yeah. Because it's not, this is not the third act of a buddy cop movie. No, exactly. Nothing against them. Yeah. But it, it brings you to a very different place with the story that maybe you didn't foresee, but I actually think it is a pretty smart move. Yeah, it was very, very well done. And I would recommend it to just about anyone. I really meant to say this earlier, and I'm slightly embarrassed that I didn't. Um, Mildred's character, oh boy, she is, she's a a rough woman. She's very coarse. And uh, she has a lot of things to say and many colorful words with which to say them. Yes. In fact, a lot of people do. So I do want to urge you, if that is a problem for you, this movie will not sit comfortably. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very coarse. (laughs) Yeah, it is extraordinarily so. But if that is not a problem for you, then obviously uh, it's been incredible. It is my favorite film of 2017, hands down. Oh, I'm making the call official. No competition. Yeah, no competition. I, oh boy, it's it's it's, it's a trip. I'm actually completely almost off topic. It's related to the movie, but not to our Mm -hmm. discussion. But I'm actually remembering she does have a very classic course Mildred conversation with a priest she no does. less like dealing yeah. with a very overt religious yeah, and side of this that really shows how far this has pushed her yeah in her complete essentially disbelief in justice it's not bled to every part of her life you know yeah. she's it has now generated this kind of broken trust to even the religion that she apparently once belonged to and, and had community with yeah quite a painful thing that it takes her through but yeah. um well done movie though my it golly. is it, oh. it certainly is Fox so Searchlight good. is responsible for that. Not a shock. I just turned us into nerdy territory right there. (laughs) That's what this is all about. (laughs) But yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Very good. Well, thank you as always for listening to Ethan and I on the Creative Commentary, one of our favorite things to do. If you have any questions, send them to podcast at horizonschurch.net or interact with us on social media, Instagram, Facebook, etc. Yeah, we got it all. Track us down in various coffee shops, well, restaurants, me, Check your side down. You know. <laughs> send me a text and then be like, oh, I see you. And I'll be like, what's so, going on? Yeah, let's do it that way. Different, different strokes. Again, thank you for listening and we will catch you next time. Mm-hmm.